I got no problem with that. This is my clapping when I'm in the theater. I saw opera on uh, Friday night. First time I ever saw an opera, full one. Now you clap like that because it's louder, right? Heavy. You're not exactly sure how you've gotten to the spot. And you're not exactly sure what to do next. You know that the stakes are high enough that you play tricks to get to sleep, but can't manage to stay asleep. It might be that you realize the debt is suffocating. How did I get here? Or too much work, not enough time, a looming deadline, awaiting the results of a biopsy, a PET scan, an MRI. It might be that you thought you could control your addiction. It might be that you thought you raised your kids the right way. It might be that you thought your marriage was fine. It might be that all of your work reviews had been positive until you were part of a cutback. It might be that you forgot to pay a bill on time. It might be you thought it would be fun. But now there's just regret. It might be I thought I could take a stand. It might be I thought, uh, well, I knew it would be risky. I just had no idea the cards would fall that way. Regret, pain, frustration, abandonment. The car that didn't yield. The accusation that stuck. The love that is leaving. And now, caught in a tornado of unforeseen consequences, the normal confidence, gone. The ease with which you breathed before is now replaced with tension, the pulse quicker, the blood pressure higher, the mouth just a little bit dry, the hands shake ever so slightly. Waves of emotion rolling through the body like a roller coaster that you are riding in the dark. No sense of what will happen next, completely out of control. The sense of being overwhelmed. It's where we are at today. Verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. The first thought here that I have, I think is the thought that, that any of us have who have encountered something incredibly challenging, something, something overwhelming, is what could have been done differently? I wonder, I just wonder, if Mordecai had known his actions would produce a genocidal response from an angry, egomaniacal, overcompensating, psychologically unstable human being, would he have just said, you know, I'll bow and let this one go? That's an honest response for me. Perhaps it's an honest response for you, right? It's like, how do you get the toothpaste back in the tube? You, 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 you can't. You can't. You can't. You can't. 
But we spend a lot of time trying to do just that. How do I adjust the hands of my watch? Or perhaps you're one of those who have a small digital computer on your wrist. Again, it's not a watch. If we could turn back the time, but now it's just a big mess, right? And how it's going to get cleaned up is anyone's guess. We don't know if Mordecai had this thought. Should he have been able to anticipate such a wicked response? I really don't know. I mean, if he's wise, right? A wise person? The study of game theory, right? How people make choices based on someone else's decision or action and how predictable those choices can be, mathematically predictable. However, the phrase game theory wasn't coined until 1944, so maybe Mordecai's off the hook. That would miss the larger point. Nothing can be done about what is done in the past. How do we move forward into the future? Now, the key for us is that we know how the story ends. And so the tension that is here, we're like, yeah, but the story ends in a good, good spot. But Mordecai doesn't know that. And just because we know how the story ends, does that mean that we should blindly wander into the future, not thinking about how our behavior impacts how it could have profound, unintended consequences for those around us? We know each other well enough. That's not what we're saying either. Mordecai, the waves of guilt and remorse and pain and all the things rush over his body. He is the cornered animal, wounded, dying, but conscious, wishing it was over. I wonder if he ever told anyone, you know, something, this one's on me. I wonder if he ever connected the dots. Or if this pogrom against him and his people was viewed as something coming ex nihilo. We're going to spend the next four weeks on these 16 plus one verses, looking at how the characters, too, basically take center stage in the story and respond. 4.12, verse 1, chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hathak, Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend to her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn why this was and why it was. 
Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gates. And Mordecai said, told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction so that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. When Hathak went and Esther and told Esther what Mordecai had said, then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he might live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And then Mordecai, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. She knows where she stands. She knows the rules. She's been told to obey the rules. She's been told to curry favor, keep your head down, keep your identity secret. Which, in terms of what little I know about people and political intrigue, might be proof of the existence of God in this story. We have gone six years with Mordecai feeding Esther information, making inquiries, and no one has figured out why the grumpy man at the front gate keeps on asking about the queen. Mordecai lays it out plainly in his view. And Esther has to decide, is now the time? Which again, gets to this intriguing theme and question of the book of Esther. How do you know what to do and when to do it? A whole bunch of years ago, I was in a master's program at Bethel Seminary, and we had a summer uh, lecture, Ruth Tucker, okay? She wrote a book entitled um, Another Gospel, okay? And what it did was it looked at various cults, um, uh, alternative religions, but mainly cults, which is an offshoot of another religion. So Christian cults, okay, offshoots of Christianity, and, and just sought to understand their perspective, understand where they came from, their history, their beliefs, and then how one might engage with them. Not in an angry, polemical sense, but in a sense of, okay, let, let's have a conversation, okay? And so that was one of those things that, that Ruth um, taught me. Like, you, you don't have to be angry at someone that disagrees with you, which is something that we might want to embrace today. At any rate, she told the story of engaging with the Worldwide Church of God, which is a Christian cult, and specifically their main leader and founder, Herbert W. Armstrong, had died, and then an individual by the name of Mike Tkach took over. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. In the midst of all of this, Mike and his son Joe come to Orthodox faith 
in Jesus Christ. They're a part of this cult, a cult that denied the Trinity, a cult that said you're not saved by faith, you're saved by works, okay, among other things. And they come to a point examining the claims of Scripture against what the cult said and said, wait a second, there's a gap here, and we think we should. They come to faith in Jesus Christ, authentic faith in Jesus Christ, and yet they're at the highest levels of government in this cult, of governance in this cult. What do you do? What do you do? Do you say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, your rejection of the Trinity is stupid, I'm setting off on my own? Do you say, you reject salvation as a gift from God, I'm setting off on my own? Or do you attempt to change the organization? What would you do? Would you make a defiant claim, here are my Christian beliefs? Or would you hang tough in an organization that you have a great deal of influence over? What would you choose to do? Some of you know the story, right? They chose to remain in the organization. They chose to exercise their gifts of leadership. They attempted to bring a cult into orthodox belief. How do you know what to do and when to do it? The queen has been told for these last six years, curry favor, which she has. Keep your head down, which she has. Conceal your identity, which she has. Is now the time to play all those chips? Should it be held for a a later date? In our relationships, how do we make the decisions that we make? How do we decide, I'm going to do this and not this? Because a challenge that is perhaps informed by our idea of creating a wisdom manifesto by the time we get to the end of Esther. The question that Mordecai asks is a pretty good question. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. I think we're often faced with choices where this is true. We just can't see it. We think our choices are our choices. They affect us, and by us, I mean my choice is my choice and it affects me. I really don't act like my choice in any given situation affects someone else. Because if I thought that, maybe I wouldn't choose to do what I did. Basically, I can do what I want. What do I need and what outcome is best for me? And I know there's people that disagree with me. And I know that these statements that I make are, 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 are rooted in my predisposition because I believe my own worst enemy isn't something that is external to me. It's me. 
even though I will frequently look at someone else's external reality to justify my behavior. What if I thought my choices affected you? What if you thought your choices affected me? What if I thought that my choices affected the reputation of Jesus Christ? From the smallest decisions I make to the biggest decisions I make. What if you thought, what if you thought that the choices you make this week reflect either positively or negatively on the reputation of Jesus Christ? What if I thought that this question, while posed to Esther when the stakes are at their highest, is actually a question that I should answer every single day of my life? Who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knows? Mordecai seems to suggest you can't necessarily predict what will happen. Who knows, Mordecai says, maybe your whole life for this one redemptive moment. Some of you are thinking, John, let's be a little less dramatic. Who knows? Maybe. Not maybe, but maybe, but maybe like no. No, you are here for the redemptive work of God to take place. The unseen power in the book of Esther. I don't want to be less dramatic. I don't want to turn down the heat on me or anyone that's hearing my voice. Our existence is for the redemptive work of God to take place. That the Lord is in the business of redemption. The Lord is in the business of salvation. And we get to be a part of that redemptive movement. So when Mordecai says, who knows, maybe... Maybe you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this. It's a rhetorical question. It's not open-ended. No, we've been invited into the kingdom of God for such a time as this. We get to be a part of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And what if I thought, not just in terms of how my behavior reflected on Jesus, which I might argue should be enough, before we post something stupid, and most of what we post is stupid, except the cute little doggy pictures, they're, they're awesome. Post all the doggy pictures you want. Or little otters. Aww. Yesterday, Anna was like, check out this little otter picture, you know, it was protected from an eagle, you know. No, I love otters. But most of the stuff that we post is stupid. 
And, and one might argue if we just thought in terms of how our behavior reflected on Jesus Christ, that would be enough. That should be enough. It should be enough. We shouldn't have to go any further than that. We shouldn't have to say to ourselves, wow, if I post this thing, will that enhance the reputation of Jesus Christ or detract from it? Because my friends out there know I'm a follower of Christ. It'll detract from the reputation of Jesus Christ. Post. Yeah, no, you don't. No, we shouldn't have to go any further than this. But even if behavior that reflects poorly on Jesus Christ isn't enough for me to change my behavior, what if I thought about my behavior influencing, for good or for bad, the redemptive work in someone else's life? The hardest person who is in your life right now, got a name? Hardest person in your life right now. Got a name? I do. We think about that person, right? And he's negative, casting them in, okay, everything that they've done bad, everything that they've done wrong, every way that they've hurt us, okay? And we carry this righteous indignation that we are right and they are wrong. And so, but what if... What if we are involved in this conversation with this individual who is extremely hard for us to be around to see the redemptive movement, a redemptive moment that God wants to take place? I define the thing in two different ways, right? Movement and moment, okay? Because there might be a person who, who does not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, okay? And, and if they can move to a place in time where they can say yes to Christ and then continue to move closer to Christ, okay? That, that there is Joel's movement towards Christ. There is a moment with Christ, a moment a decision is made. And then again, movement towards Christ continuing, right? And sometimes we get to be a part of those redemptive moments, that point in time where a breakthrough happens and someone says yes to Jesus Christ for the very first time or they see yes to Jesus Christ in a significant way and they get clear of an addiction or they get clear of something really, really dark. And sometimes we're invited to be a part of the movement of God to that moment and we don't get to see the results. We don't ever get to that moment. But that's no less the work of God. So what if the hardest person that exists in your life right now is there so that the redemptive work of Jesus Christ can take place? What if that person is there in our lives so that we can experience redemptive movement and hopefully, ultimately, a redemptive moment. I want to ask myself the question, am I uniquely positioned in this person's life to make a difference in their redemptive movement in their redemptive moment?
I want to ask myself, am I uniquely positioned in this person's life to make a difference in their redemptive movement, a redemptive moment? Always keeping in mind, always, always, always keeping in mind that the person God might be most interested in having a redemptive moment, movement is me. A couple weeks ago, we started Wisdom Manifesto. Where are you at? Have you started yours? Wrote some things down? You didn't like the assignment? <laughs> Too heavy a lift? You don't like to type much? Don't like to read much? It hurts your brain? What? I don't. Okay. You don't want to be wise. You don't want to think about being wise. What? Come on, help me. Just, just throw me a bone. Give me something. Okay, so here's mine, right? Wisdom Manifesto, okay? My Wisdom Manifesto starts off with, number one, I'm not wise. Number two, am I willing to be obedient and disobedient? Number three, am I willing to let an outside voice speak into my existence? Number four, my ego, is it in the way? Right now, number five, incomplete list, but number five is what role do I play in the redemptive work of God? The movements and the moments that are part of my life and I have influence over. I challenge you. Take it on. It's not a heavy lift. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you. It is so easy to get sidetracked when we're overwhelmed. It is so easy to look back and just want to put the toothpaste back in the tube and fix the problem, pretending it never existed. But who knows, oh great God, whether or not you have brought us to this point into your kingdom for such a time as this. For some of us, oh great God, it is the redemptive movement leading to a redemptive moment in our own lives. Maybe it's saying yes to Christ. Maybe it's saying no to ego. Maybe it's walking away from addiction. Maybe it's fill in the blank. And for some of us, oh great God, it's probably the work that we get to do with someone else that might be really hard for us to do. Can we get keyed into seeing your movement and, and, and your moments in other people's lives and how we can play a role in someone moving closer to Christ? Work in our hearts, oh great God. Let us understand that probably both things are true. 
We need your redemptive work in our lives, and we need to allow your redemptive work to flow through our lives. We invite you in, O great God. By the power of your spirit, do what you need to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.